Welcome to Spirits of Whiskey. We explore the wide world of whiskey through the many colorful personalities who make it, promote it, write about it, and more. With each podcast, Carrie Moynihan, a certified bourbon steward and bartender, and yours truly, Philip Dobar, director of the Cocktail Collection, interview whiskey's most important names. From high-profile makers, blenders, and ambassadors, to out-of-the-way innovators and remote pioneers. Join us as we discover the people and elements that give the water of life its spirit. It is Whiskey Wednesday, May 19th, 2021, and you're listening to episode 42. Today, we speak with Rob Arnold, TX whiskey maker and author of The Terroir of Whiskey, A Distiller's Journey into the Flavor of Place. But first, stay tuned for this week's Whiskey Chronicles. Spirits of Whiskey explores the wide world of whiskey through high-profile and out-of-the-way makers, blenders, writers, ambassadors, innovators, and pioneers. And we've been traveling the world virtually to bring these people and their whiskey journeys to you. We realize just how many great stories we've put aside to share with you at a later date. And that date is here. Spirits of Whiskey is offering access to its new VIP content page to loyal listeners and whiskey lovers who want more. And when it comes to whiskey, who doesn't want more? For as little as 99 cents a month, you can have access to videos related to topics discussed on past podcasts, as well as our new series, The Malting Floor. Sign up now to become a supporter at anchor.fm slash spirits hyphen of hyphen whiskey. That's whiskey with an E. Click on the support button and select the contribution level that's right for you. Once you've submitted your payment information, just visit our website, spiritsofwhiskey.com, to create your personal VIP access account. We can't wait to see you in the VIP lounge. Join us. Terroir. There are few concepts more closely associated with the quote-unquote magic rather than the mechanics of winemaking. Magic? Well, it's not really magic, at least not in the prestidigitation sense of the word. Rather, it's in the sense that we humans who care about causality often explain the seeming alchemy that occurs between the factors in an equation and what comes out the other end as something more than, or at least different from, the sum of its parts. So, again, terroir. On the front end of the winemaking process, the factors in winemaking, as it were, it's the complete natural environment in which a particular wine is produced, including soil, topography, and climate. On the back, or consumer end, of the equation, it's the characteristic taste and flavor imparted to a wine by the environment in which it is produced. So, okay, both of those definitions are lifted directly from Oxford Languages, an online dictionary, and both include the word wine in the definition. Many, however, have wondered, and continue to wonder, as well as argue one way or the other as to whether terroir can be applied to other alcoholic beverages, including beer and spirits. But nowhere in the spirited beverage universe does the debate over terroir generate more heat than in whiskey-making. Some, perhaps most notably last week's guest on Spirits of Whiskey, Robin Robinson, author of The Complete Whiskey Course, argued that terroir just cannot, and thus does not, survive the distilling process, which, when compared to the fermentation process, which produces wine, is a violent affair, which effectively strips spirits of those elements of terroir associated with wine. Robinson, rather, offers provenance, a term that denotes the origins and sources of a given product and its elements as a more appropriately descriptive and thus effective means of appreciating whiskey's ecology and humanity. Still others, among them today's guest, distiller Rob Arnold, author of The Terroir of Whiskey, shout, Not so fast! to those who dismiss the notion that distilling destroys the vaunted nuances of inputs and outputs so valued in wine. By taking readers on a world tour of whiskey and the science of flavor, Arnold argues that whiskey does indeed embody terroir. And he makes his point, in part, by showcasing the work of innovative botanists, farmers, and distillers who, through the rediscovery, propagation, and use of heirloom cereal grains, are working to recapture a sense of place and create identifiably local strains of the water of life. Up next, we speak with distiller Rob Arnold about his whiskey journey, his latest book, and his thoughts on terroir in whiskey. Stay with us. Hey, do you like whiskey, food, and adventure? I do. Hi, I'm Carrie. I'm Philip. I'm Louise. I'm the chef. Chef Louise Leonard, as in our World of Wheezy segment host here on the podcast, and Whiskey, a Chef's Journey. That chef. 
That's right, the project that started this very podcast. The series stars our very own chef, Louise Leonard, winner of Emmy-winning The Taste on ABC. And explores and connects the worlds of whiskey and food, city by city, country by country. Would you like to see this spirited culinary adventure on a TV near you? Well, you can by helping us finish the pilot episode through our crowdfunding campaign. For more information, including behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and incentives. And to make a pledge, visit our website, whiskeyashefsjourney.com. Or search for our campaign, Whiskey A Chef's Journey, at gofundme.com. That's gofundme.com now. Well, I think it's a cheers to that. Bless. <laughs> cheers. cheers. Today on Spirits of Whiskey, we talk to Mr. Rob Arnold, master distiller at Firestone and Robertson Distilling Company in Fort Worth, Texas, makers of TX Whiskey. Welcome, Rob. Thank you. So, Rob, as you are now getting your doctorate, how on earth did you get from a child in school to still an adult in school? And did you always know that this would be the section of education that you would pursue? And what is your whiskey journey? No, I definitely did not grow up thinking I was going to get a PhD in plant breeding and genetics first (laughs) off. And I didn't grow up thinking I was going to be a distiller either. So I am from Kentucky. I grew up in Louisville. I'm a third generation member of the whiskey industry. So my uncle, grandfather, my great uncles were all in the bourbon industry. A lot of them worked for Brown Foreman. My uncle ran an engineering company that helped build distilleries from Kentucky to China. My great grandfather was a brewmaster from Germany who came over to Indiana to be a brewer. It's definitely in the family, but I grew up and it was never a a career path that I planned on taking. I always liked science. I didn't know for sure, but I figured, well, I'll go to college and do pre-med, which is what every kid that likes science in high school kind of thinks might they might go do, it seems like. But then I started doing research in college really as a way to, to bolster my application for med school. And I just became enamored with research in the lab because science really came to life. It was so different than in the classroom. And I spent some time at some great institutions, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, which is the oceanography arm for MIT, worked with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. I did some time at Oak Ridge National Lab. This is all as an undergrad. You know, a scientific research career was what I wanted to do. So by sophomore year in college, I knew I didn't want to go to med school. I wanted to be a scientist. I went to get a PhD at the University of Texas. They're one of their main medical branches is here in Dallas, where I live now at UT Southwestern Medical Center. So I do a PhD in biochemistry and was doing drug discovery research, but I also started making beer in grad school. And this is all back in 2009 was when I enrolled in that biochemistry program. So I was homebrewing as a PhD student, and then I might have played around with distillation at home. In that state where it's legal, right? You could not possibly comment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can't remember. It was so long ago now. But what happened was I realized that so much of the science that I enjoyed and like the pursuit of science, the way that science works and the way that you explore topics and conduct experiments, a lot of that overlapped into brewing and distilling. And then I really got to learn more about my family's ties to the industry. And I decided I wanted to pivot and become a whiskey distiller and utilize that science that I was passionate about, but also in our industry that had family ties to. My plan was to try to open a small distillery, but through the grapevine, through due diligence of trying to start a distillery, I got in touch with Troy Robertson and Leonard Firestone, and they were the two proprietors, the founders of TX Whiskey. I got in touch with them before the company had ever been announced to the public. I heard them. They needed a distiller, so I joined them as the first employee back in 2011 as the distiller for TX Whiskey and have been there ever since. And on the side, you've been writing books. Yeah, well, so a really good friend of mine, his name's um, Eric Simonic. He's a professor at TCU. He's the chair of the chemistry department, actually. That's Texas Christian. Texas Christian University, yeah. Mm-hmm. And we actually worked with Texas Christian University early on when I joined TX because we actually went out and isolated a wild yeast that we used to make all of our bourbons and rye whiskeys. And I needed some lab space to do the wild yeast the way I wanted to do it. And so TCU gave us lab space. So I got to know a lot of the faculty there. Eric, I got to know really well. 
because he early on from when I really, when I first met him, I think he asked me, Hey, let's write a book together about whiskey. And so we, for a couple of years, just the idea was just floated back and forth, but then we ended up doing it. And we wrote a book called shots of knowledge, the science of whiskey that TCU press published in 2016. And about that same time is when I joined my second PhD program in plant breeding and genetics, at Texas A&M. And my project there was all around whiskey, really around evaluating and developing corn for whiskey, which really hasn't been done, at least the prohibition era. Wow. Can't make up my mind about who I am. Am I a distiller or a scientist? And so eventually I just gave up and decided I would try to be both. Yeah. The scientist distiller, the actor singer. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Yeah. Why limit yourself? <laughs> Definitely more scientists now probably than I was even a couple of years ago. So you learn the nuts and bolts, the hands-on aspect of it on the job. Is that correct? Yeah. And that's what I learned early on when I, the science, I might've understood a lot of the science and the theory, but to apply it, it's experience. There's just little things that you just like, for instance, how to clean tanks correctly. Yeah. That, that's a massively important part yes. of the process, how to correctly use caustic how to correctly steam a fermenter. You can know all the science and all the chemical information and even whatever, DNA, whatever. It doesn't matter if you can't clean your tank because right. you're not going to make good whiskey. So there are a lot of on-the-job learning. And I had some great teachers, Dave Pickerel, like so many other distillers that was, my, was our original consultant. Dave's first job in the bourbon industry was actually with my uncle's company. Wow. Oh, wow. So very much a full circle kind of thing. You know, Dave was very much a Johnny Whiskey Yes, student. for yes. sure. Exactly. Responsible for so many whiskeys and so many careers. Uh-huh. We actually built our second distillery that opened. We started making whiskey there in early 2018. So our first distillation system was a pot still operation which is what Dave trained me on the pot stills. And that would, again, that was back in 2011, 2012. Larry Ebersold was our consultant for our new distillery, which is a traditional column still doubler operation, a traditional bourbon production distillation system. And Larry was the master distiller at what he calls Seagram's or LDI or MGP. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he's in a lot of ways... A lot of new distilleries that have installed the traditional beer still, which is the column still, a beer still doubler operation, Larry has been their consultant. There's a, like anywhere from New Rift to Rabbit Hole to us. So that's really a cool part about the industry is there's obviously a lot of marketing fluff around the word master distiller, but there is still that kind of master apprentice relationship. It's not like it used to be. I'm sure 100 years ago, or but it's still there, which is a really cool part of the industry. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So what was the first thing you made off the still? We made a lot of bourbon. The first distillery, it was all around bourbon. We did experiment with some other mash bills from rye whiskey to single malt whiskey, which hasn't been released. Ooh. We even played around it a lot. Be? With, it will be. Yeah. We'll be very happy to do that for you and give you some notes. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, we played around a lot with a uh, straight barley, which really like a single pot still Irish whiskey. Nice. Nice. Mash bill where you had... Predominant. We had 60% raw barley, 40% malted barley. But we're very much a bourbon distillery. Our new system, our, our new whiskey ranch is our new distillery, is what we call it. And that's we're one of the largest distilleries in the country with that operation. We can do about 40 barrels a batch. It's on a former golf course, is that correct? It is, yeah. It's on a former Glen Garden Country Club, which we bought back in 2013, 2014. And then it took us a couple of years to build this new site. But Mm -hmm. we've produced a lot of bourbon and a lot of rye whiskey on that system. And that is what we focus on. Now, this blended whiskey, this is at least all you released for the first four or five years, correct? And the blended whiskey, and we've never tried to hide this fact, has always been whiskeys that we source. So Mm -hmm. there is bourbon in the blend. There's Mm -hmm. also light whiskey, which is a style of whiskey that is distilled to a, a higher, more mm-hmm. neutral proof than bourbon and then aged in used barrels, unlike bourbon, which is obviously in new Now, barrel. when you put mm-hmm. this out, is it the same recipe for each batch you blend, or is it if you get one from three years ago, it's going to be different than the ones you put out today? It should be consistent, but there's always right, slight right. drifts. In a- is this 100% sourced, or is there any of your juice in it? Right now, it's 100% sourced starting and I'm not counting down the days, but starting in March of 2022. All of the bourbon that's used in TX whiskey will be our Texas bourbon. And we also have, I'm hoping, we don't have the system to make light whiskey, but I do hope that we can 
ship our Texas grains to MGP who mm-hmm. produces light whiskey for us and have them use. There are some great light whiskeys out there. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's starting to come into its own yet in terms of reputation, but whiskey folk are starting to see that there is something to light whiskey. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting style and the distillation proofs that you can target are widely different. You have a 161 proof light whiskey that could be super flavorful. You can have a 189 and a half proof light whiskey. Wow. I'm talking like off the still proof. Mm-hmm. And that would be a whisper away from neutral spirit. Both of those would qualify as light whiskey as long as you aged it correctly. So and aging it is in a used barrel. But it's very much it's essentially our Scotch grain whiskey, Irish grain whiskey, our equivalent is light whiskey. Awesome. Uh-huh. They're produced in nearly the same. I really like the tops you have on all these bottles. They all have different tops. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Work with local bootmakers around Texas, everyone from big boys like Justin and Tony Lama to but the bottle design. And a couple of them have collars, have cloth collars. Yes. Yeah, so it's all boot leather. Oh, that's awesome. So we actually, more craft boutique makers in Fort Worth, like ML Letty's, and we work with them. We acquire boot scraps from them. So when you make a pair of Western boots, there's always boot scraps left over, and they could produce wallets or belts or just throw those scraps away. That's wonderful. So the four bourbons have boot leather collars. Yeah, mine has boot leather on the top, and then it's got a cloth neck looks like oh yeah there's leather yeah, on yeah. the top yeah i see that yeah. yeah oh yeah the cloth neck the canvas wrap yeah i really love how you're no waste basically you're using people's scraps to make something else <laughs> so that there's less waste in the world which i always appreciate we're a texas-based distillery we wanted to tap into where we're from and we do that a lot with our ingredients on the um, especially with the bourbons and rye whiskeys that we produce very much believe in the idea of terroir that it applies to whiskey as well um yeah we're gonna get to that one other thing i've noticed about these tops and that's the great sound it makes when you open (laughs) oh indeed yeah yeah so yeah they're musical yeah we definitely wanted to have a bottle design that had a texas theme to it but without being super tacky by having a belt buckle (laughs) granted there's a big tx on the bottle we're not being that inconspicuous but that's just so the post office knows where to send it that's all right i think it's a very unique idea though i've never seen anybody else do anything in this fancy with their top so it's it's unique i like it yeah now rob when we interview someone who has one or two whiskeys maybe three we wait till the end but we have six before us. And so typically when there are five or six, we taste as we go. Yeah. Shall we start with the blended? Yes, I just poured mine. Yeah, so the blended, it's 82 proof. We have a proprietary recipe blending different whiskey styles. Like I said, it's all four-year whiskey that we use. So it's straight bourbon and we use light whiskey. Mm-hmm. And the idea with the blend was to really accentuate the sweet vanilla flavors of bourbon while we quiet down some of the more oak forward notes not that those are bad but Mm -hmm. in a in this style of whiskey we wanted a very light drinkable versatile whiskey and if you were to add some dosage to this you would have a toffee liqueur this is just magnificent yeah yeah oh wow it's very sweet vanilla forward caramel it is the nose is very vanilla extract with a very light hint of unsalted play-doh I don't know if that makes any sense. <laughs> oh, okay. uh, but this one, it's like vanilla extract yeah. on top of Play-Doh that doesn't have salt in it. And it's amazing smell. <laughs> and it's not overly complex. It's not meant to be. It's not, the finish is pretty, it's not a long finish. It's a light mouthfeel. Yeah, but it's light and fluffy. I like it. And based on how light it is, the flavors, the sweetness, it's very versatile in cocktails. It yeah. can work. You can make a great margarita with and substitute. TX whiskey for tequila. Mm-hmm. And can you tell us what the mash bill is, or is that proprietary secret, top secret information? No, it's not proprietary. So the bourbon is a corn, rye, malted barley mash bill, and it's 75% corn, 21% rye, 1% malted barley. The light whiskey is a 99% corn, 1% malted barley recipe. Okay. So it's very much a corn forward whiskey with some rye and malted barley mingled in there. Okay. I just, I have not tasted anything like this blend before. It is so good. Yeah. Now in 2016, I believe you introduced your straight bourbon. Is that accurate? We did. Yes. Presumably you'd been making this from the beginning and it had been laying up. Right. Because it's a four year, correct? 
It is, yeah. So we started blending TX whiskey in 2012 and bottling that and selling it. At the same time, we were distilling from scratch TX straight bourbon. But we did wait for, really, we start our first batch was March 2012, and we didn't release it till December 2016. Mm -hmm. We waited on it, and it is a 90-proof bourbon. This is 74% corn, 14% wheat, 12% malted barley, so it's a wheated bourbon. All of the corn and all of the wheat and the bottle you have is from a single farm about 45 minutes south of Artery. I get a lot of leather on the nose on this one, and I don't think it's from the top. No. <laughs> no, there's That's a, lovely. You get leathery spice, like cinnamon spice, dark fruit, fig kind of flavor to it. We A lot of that cinnamon, dark fruit, and we know this because we've done studies, but a lot of that's coming from our proprietary wild yeast. So we have a, a wild Texas yeast strain. It's actually the first thing I did when I joined the company was go on a wild Texas yeast hunt. My neighbor owns a brewery and they've made beer with our yeast. And it's a very Saison, Hefeweizen, farmhouse style. It's a Bavarian, it's, it's like those Bavarian wheat strains, those that have a lot of that nice phenolic and spice notes mm. and some of that um, fruitiness. And that's really what yeah. our yeast provides. So we, we know we've looked at the chemical makeup, the, the certain volatile phenols that you see with these specific yeast strains. Yeah. Ours produces those. To me, it's a massively important part of the process. It is something that Kentucky and Tennessee and really American distilleries in general have always been very much believers in that yeast is a crucial part of the process. The proprietary strains are a way to provide flavors to your product that are distinct that no one else has. Master distillers used to be called distillers and yeast makers. That's how important the ability to capture and propagate yeast was. It really does impact the flavor a lot. And that's yeah. not that surprising. The fermentation is or I guess in general, you've got the grain, the yeast, and the oak barrel, and, and they all do play a role just because the oak barrel might be the most influential in some styles doesn't mean that the other two ingredients are not massively important when it comes to the final flavor of the product. I'm a big Speyside Scotch region whiskey drinker. Yeah. And bourbon, although I like it, usually if there's an option between bourbon and a scotch, then I'll take the scotch unless it's a disgusting blend and then I'll yep. do bourbon. Yep. So I generally don't go for the straight bourbon unless that's all they have. Yeah. If I was in a restaurant right now and I saw this on the shelf, I'd pick it number one. This is fantastic. And I, I love oh. that the smell, it smells like Wilson's uh, Leather Shop, which I don't know if they have those anymore, but also it smells like a boot barn. Uh-huh. And it brings me, like, this taste brings me back. To, no, it's great. This taste brings me back. I used to work at this ranch called Bucknord Ranch when I was in junior high, actually, in the summers. I was 14. And we would do, it was up on the hill in San Jose, and there was horses up at the top, but then we'd have this whole picnic area where people in their businesses would come and they would have these Western-style picnics for their companies. And every weekend, we'd wear jeans and red and white checkered shirt with the little cowboy tie and the cowboy hat. And we would be doing like hay rides and all these country type potato sack races, all these things. Yeah. And the smell and taste of this bourbon totally brings me back to that. Bringing you my back childhood. to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's definitely not the Blog Kentucky bourbon is going to have more vanilla, more kind of banana, juicy fruit flavor to it. It's usually sweeter than RTX bourbon. Now, I don't know, you know how much of that is due to the pot still, because what you're drinking right now came off our pot stills, mm -hmm. versus what we're going to start releasing in a year once our column still bourbon turns four years old. So do you not have the pot stills at all anymore, or you have both? We do, we, but they're not, they're not in operation. Okay. But I, I am curious in general across all of craft whiskey, just as more of these newer distilleries start working on systems that look a lot more like what Kentucky has been using for a long time with the heritage brands. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why I do think there's, I think a lot of these very unique pot still bourbons are great. I also personally love column still bourbon. And I think a lot of places around the country that are starting to, again, still this style of bourbon, there's always these comments, well, craft bourbon doesn't say anything like Kentucky bourbon. I do think that as, craft distilleries quote unquote start having bourbon come of age from column stills you'll see it start to gravitate closer to what's out of kentucky but that's why i think it's so important that the ingredients that we use are specific to where we are and that we're not using commodity ingredients because then you really will just make something that tastes kind of like what's in kentucky and your only major variable might be where you age it which is important right yeah speaking of which you this dovetails nicely i think single farm distillery talk to us about that so 
so the, the bourbon, all the bourbons in front of you, they all of the corn and all of the wheat that we use in those bourbon and, and all the in, in our bourbon in general comes from a single farm. So Sawyer Farms is about forty five miles south of our distillery. It's run by John Sawyer. He's a fourth generation Texas farmer. And starting last year, we started to distill using his barley as well. We don't distill anything at our at TX that hasn't come from his farm at this point. Wow. So he's growing so, the rye as well. And the rye. So he does all four corn, wheat, rye, and, and barley, wow. which we have malted mm-hmm. locally in Fort Worth. There's a, a local craft maltster called Tex Malt who does all the malting of our barley. That's wonderful. And there's no rye in our weeded bourbons, which is TX bourbon, but we do have the rye whiskey, obviously. Mm. And so that to be, well, to be upfront, the one you have is our experimental release. We only made four or five barrels of that batch back in 2000. We're so lucky, Philip. I'm excited about that. Well, either that or we're unwitting guinea pig. That too. (laughs) Yeah. When we made that, we made our a few batches for fun, but we also realized we wanted to produce rye whiskey, but we didn't want to do it unless we could work with Texas rye. And so John was instrumental in Texas, one of the pioneers of growing rye here in the state, especially for whiskey making. And so we've got thousands and thousands of barrels of 100% whiskey aging in our warehouse, all from his Question. farm. There must be a history of cultivating rye in Texas because there are so many people of German extraction in Texas. Yeah, and that's it's kind of like in Kentucky. There used to be a thriving rye industry, and it all went to the wayside with the commodity grain system. Now they're trying to bring rye back to Kentucky. Unfortunately, and we've dealt with this too. The modern varieties of rye were definitely not selected for warmer environments. There are ways around it. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And John has been, like I said, a big part of finding the right techniques, just everything from when you plant it to how you by the fertilizer to any, all these things. It's not perfect. We're actually, we love the flavor, but the yields and the, the yeah, it's difficult. We could, there's still a long way to go. So we're actually starting to breed our own varieties of rye now, working with our collaborators wow. with the idea that we will breed and select new rye varieties that are adapted to Texas and potentially to Kentucky as well. We're, we're working with our sister distilleries, Rabbit Hole and Smooth Ambler. Okay. I'm going to try the rye now before, now that we've been talking about it. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's take a break from the bourbon. While you're pouring yourself some rye there, Carrie, can you talk to us about your press materials speak of uh, proprietary toasting and charring recipes? Let's talk wood. Yeah. What you do to that wood. So everything in front of you, which would have been made at least four years ago. Woo, that's hot. Um, mm. Yeah, it's, that's very fun. Uh-huh. I think it's 126. Yeah, 126.13. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh-huh. That's good, yeah, though. Might want a little yeah, water. I'm, I'm going to go get um, some water. I'll be right back. Keep talking. <laughs> but, uh, we've always worked with Independent Stave Company, Char 3 Barrels, New Charred Oak by Law, and we use American White Oak like almost every bourbon distiller does. Now, we did, this was a project that has been ongoing, or it lasted at least about four years, and, and then... We implemented what we found, but we developed some proprietary toasting recipes with Independent Save Company and incorporated those into our barrel program. Now, no, none of those whiskeys have actually come of age yet, but that will just be enter. It'll be essentially the bourbons and ryes that we produce that have been aged in these barrels with proprietary toast will just be integrated into our existing expressions. Over uh-huh. time. And there, look, there's everything from our new distillation system to new varieties of corn and wheat and rye that we're breeding, to barley from Texas, to proprietary toasted recipes for our barrels. We are actively, constantly exploring how to create a better product. We don't ever assume we have it. And so there will be a natural evolution to all of our shins for at least the next five to 10 years. Don't do too much because so far, so good. (laughs) So far, so good. So that's <laughs> enough too much. Yeah. No. We want to change it drastically, but we want to continue to push the envelope and see yeah. what's out there. Now we can also, through blending, you can always find ways to achieve consistencies and, and not lose flavors that you want. And we've got a great master blender, Ali Ochoa, who, like me, came from a hard science background. She's got a master's in flavor chemistry and sensory science. I just love that title. But, I would just love to be able to walk around and say, I'm a master of sensory. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And we'll have to, we'll be happy to speak to her. And, and also, it, it sounds great. like some title out of Harry Potter. 
Yeah. Like sorcery or something. <laughs> I wanted to say I added water to this rye. And, oh, wow, did that open it up. And it is just, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's su- The bourbon's got some nice cinnamon spice, but the rye is yeah. that time, times 10. It's super spicy and it's, it's cinnamon and allspice. And- it's great. Oh, my Lord, that drinks so smoothly. I told you, it's delicious. Mm-hmm. 126.13 and yet... That is the sweet spot. You must have determined that as Dave Prickle maintained, proof is a measure of flavor yep. more than it is a measure of heat. Yeah, and we I wanted to release some barrel proof expressions. We only had from 2012 to 2016, all we had was TX whiskey. And then from December 2016, we introduced TX bourbon, but we didn't release anything after that until 2020. Uh-huh. So the main thing I wanted to do was release some barrel proof expressions because that's how I had been drinking our bourbon and the ride for a long time. Do they all seem to get to be at about 127.2 or just my bottle for the barrel proof? So everything that you guys have right now would have been an entry proof of 120. Okay. And especially at our old distillery, which was where all of our barrels were aging essentially in a big brick warehouse, those barrels really saw a big proof increase from 120 to 126 127 after four years was pretty common but we see differences now in our rickhouse maturation so we've got a 20,000 barrel bar in rickhouse we're building a new one right now which again the traditional style of aging in kentucky and tennessee and we see different changes in proof in that style of aging yeah um, sometimes they go down sometimes they go up based on where they're on the warehouse. All right, let's see what this 127 is here. One thing I wanted to cover, because I think it's worth discussing here, recognition, awards recognition for your work. At San Francisco World Spirits awarded TX Whiskey with double gold, best American craft whiskey. For the blended, yes? For the blended, yeah, TX Mm -hmm. blended whiskey. TX Bourbon has picked up gold medals at San Francisco at International Spirits Challenge, 92 rating with mm-hmm. Ultimate Spirits Challenge. And the TX Bourbon Barrel Proof has picked up some golds as well at okay. the Proof Awards, which is a um, new one that was this mm-hmm. year, and uh, 90 plus rating as well. You're not doing too bad. Yeah, we've, we've done well and we <laughs> hit the home run and right away from in 2013. But, and then, like I said, we didn't, re- we didn't release anything for a while, but... It's been nice that especially in 2019 and 2020, we started picking up some golds for the bourbon. And we had some silver medals along the way as well for the bourbon, but it was nice. Yeah, yeah, those are good too. Yeah, but it was nice when the gold came in. They add color to the wall, so it's okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. I have sat on many panels at many competitions, and sometimes everyone at the table is ready to award gold, which of course would result in a double gold if it's unanimous. But uh, there's someone at the table who's just, eh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna stand on silver. Yep. Yeah, that's the reality of it. It is. You enter more than one and it's a good product eventually to, now the rye uh, is one evens out. Yep. The rye is one hundred percent rye. Eighty five fifteen. And if Dave Pickerel taught you anything, it's the fiendish difficulty of working with rye. Yes. Yeah, it's more difficult than corn. <laughs> Milling's not quite the problem. It's it's the viscosity and the foam. Uh-huh. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm sure he told you his overloaded washing machine story. Yeah, there was rye <laughs> foam everywhere. Yeah, we've. I don't know if you ever made rye whiskey unless you've had at least an overflow or two. If you, <laughs> if you have, you're not trying very hard. <laughs> you gotta because you really you just need so much headspace in the fermenter to account for the foaming. Right. But every distiller is the same way. They want to max it out. So there's just a few inches of headspace yeah. on their fermenters, no matter if it's a five gallon or 15,000 gallon fermenter. And if you're used to making bourbon, then you know, there's not much foaming at all. So you mm-hmm. just push it as far as you want. There are more and more makers going 100%. We interviewed Becky Harris at Catoctin yeah. Week, and everything they make is 100%. Yeah. And we 85% rye, 15% malted rye is the recipe. Mm-hmm. And that was the recipe for what you have, which was our experimental trial batches back in 20. 20- I think the experiment went well and you should just continue mm. with that. It's delicious. Yeah. We've been making rye with that same recipe since 2018. So we've got thousands of barrels in the warehouse of mm. what will be TX straight rye, which will come out probably next year when those barrels will start to turn four years old. And we try to maintain at least four years of base. Okay. 
Maybe that would be a good time to interview your master blender. That's right. That'd be a great time. Mm-hmm. Here's a question. The barrel proof bourbon, straight Texas bourbon, is that the same as the TX straight bourbon, just barrel proof? Because I, I get a lot of the same notes on it. Right. Okay. It is. This is honestly TX bourbon 90 proof isn't too different because we are just, that's one thing with a lot of the small distilleries, our inventories are so low that we can definitely keep consistency in our products, but we're always finding ways to evolve it, 100 barrel batch or something. Mm-hmm. So is it safe to assume then that's the same base that's going into the port finish and the sherry finish? It is. So the port and the sherry finishes, it's that same four-year-old. So we put that bourbon into tawny port barrels and into PX sherry barrels. Mm-hmm. And the, the tawny port barrels were French oak, uh, the PX sherry were American oak, and they finished for six to eight months and then bottled at 101.6 proof. Mm-hmm. And Minor port already. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's try that. And the, the port actually just picked up a gold as well at the Proof Awards a few weeks oh, ago. Oh, congratulations. I love the color on that. That's beautiful. Yeah, and both of them, the color is very deep. And of course, the bottle has, uh, the oh. boot leather is a deep purple. Yeah. Reminiscent um, of port. So the port finish, it's a lot of, a lot of that grape, a lot of nuttiness toasted nuts a lot of that Mm -hmm. spice is still there that cinnamon those baking spices yeah it's good i definitely still get the leather but i also get a nice definitely not overly sweet and the color on this is just this gorgeous Mm -hmm. amber yeah this is magnificent is not too strong a word yeah now it's time for the sherry i love px sherry I, i i love sherry period but px sherries are just the ice cream of fortified wines they're just special yeah, and we did trials with the, before we actually committed to the product with this PX Sherry from the bodega, from the same bodega that we used for the large scale. And the flavors of molasses and like sweet barbecue flavors is super interesting. It's not what we expected, but we just we loved it. We weren't going to do both port and sherry, but the trials, we liked them both so much. And we thought they were distinct enough that they wouldn't necessarily compete with each other and that they would actually maybe provide, might even be fun to have them side by side. Mm-hmm. We just decided, let's just do them both. It is. It's fun for us to have them side by side, I can tell you. Yes. Now, presumably these were, the port and sherry casks were wet casks. Yes. Mm-hmm. I thought I would like the sherry better because I'm a big, as I said earlier, a big Speyside fan and a lot, they used to, and not so much anymore, but they used to do all their stuff in sherry. You're right. But I'm in love with this port finish they're really not the same yeah the sherry has i think a much sweeter molasses almost a more rich profile but that port just it is so much there's so much grape for it it's juicy yeah yeah don't stop making i like them both but they're but they're different animals now these sherry casks these are 100 american oak correct they are. Wow. Yeah, they're all Quercus alba, American oak. Okay. Now, speaking of Quercus or Querci or Querci, Quercus Gariana. Yeah. We spoke to Matt Hoffman yeah. of Westbrook yeah, yeah. Distillery about his work. We interviewed him mm-hmm. and Quercus Gariana. They have one expression, I believe, currently that employs that oak strain yeah. that is particular to the Pacific Northwest. It's a very yeah. narrow band of it, which I think is, Carrie, I hope you'd agree, is a good segue to the notion of terroir. I think it is. I am in love with this idea of the terroir. So I don't know if you've ever listened <laughs> to our podcast, but we have the Whiskey Chronicles comes on before the interview with our guest. and. One time, and I think it was actually that, yeah, it was that episode. We talked about the terroir of whiskey, and I had to make a note to say there is mixed views about is there terroir, is there not? And I said, but we'll talk about that in a different episode. And this is that episode because you have this beautiful book, The Terroir of Whiskey, A Distiller's Journey into the Flavor of the Place. Tell us how you define terroir in whiskey because we know that so many people, including a previous guest who- Full disclosure, Robin Robinson, we interviewed recently and we did set up the two of you back to back. We're not going for cheap, but we are going for informed discussion. Yes. So, Rob, tell us about the terroir of whiskey, because I'm with you. I think there's terroir. So to me, it's tied to agriculture. It's tied to the grain. So that's something that it's not that I don't think that Quercus Gariana or Oregon Oak has a certain provenance to it that makes it distinct and based on where it's from. But to me, when we can't have terroir apply to everything or else it loses its purpose. And I've heard Robin talk about this. If you're overlapping terroir and provenance, all of a sudden you lose the meaning of what it is. And in the wine industry, and wine is where this has been championed, 
and where all the research is, uh, terroir is tied to the vineyard. So we're not talking about the oak. doesn't mean where the oak comes from isn't important. It definitely is. But we're talking about the vineyard in the context of wine. We're talking about the farm in the context of whiskey. So to me, it's at a minimum, it's talking about how the environment influences the flavors that develop in grain on the farm. I think really a better way to describe it is how varieties express flavor in different ways through their environment. And that's much more in line with how it's looked at in the wine industry. That's very much in line with the basis of plant breeding where you have genetic effects. So the variety, Mm -hmm. you have environmental effects. So the climate, how much water, how much rainfall, agronomic management, do you have fertilizer, manure, whatever. And then you have the interaction of those two, the gene environment interaction. And that's talking about how varieties will express some characteristic in a way that's specific to where they're grown. And that to me is terroir and the characteristic is flavor. Yeah. I guess opponents of whiskey terroir, I don't think they are of the mindset that grain itself can't harbor differences in flavor based on the variety and indeed they are not right Right. what they posit is that while the distilling process strips the juice of anything that one could properly call terroir right but that it does not strip it of any character rather the resulting liquid has provenance and i think that again terroir is an aspect it's a part of a whiskey's provenance so i would say the flavor as a whole and what makes that whiskey unique based on the grains and based on the yeast strain and based on the oak barrel and what kind of oak it is and where it's aged. Is it aged in Texas or Kentucky or Tennessee or Oregon? And then the the passion and the culture around the distillery and how they pursue whiskey making. To me, that's talking about provenance. Mm -hmm. And again, terroir is one part of this. And it's talking about how flavors that are derived from the grain can be influenced based on the variety that you work with Mm -hmm. and where that variety grows. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, I totally get that on the surface, distillation would look like a very destructive process, especially compared to what winemaking looks like, which doesn't look nearly as destructive, where you just, you have grapes and you crush them and they ferment. That is not exactly how there's more to it than that, obviously, but... I'm picturing Lucille Ball in that big (laughs) bat right now with her feet. You got to get your foot into it. Yeah. Got to get your feet in, into it. Yeah. So to a human, sure, the distillation process probably does look very destructive, but to a flavor compound, it's not. It doesn't mean that distillation can't potentially manipulate through chemical reactions that happen inside the still some of those flavor compounds that come from grain, but you're not destroying those flavor compounds. Right. So like really good examples are like terpenes, like beta-damascinone. Beta ionone. These are massively important for the flavor of not just whiskey, but also wine. We know they're derived directly from grapes and wine. They're also derived directly from grains and whiskey. They are important contributors to flavor in all whiskeys. They come from the grain. They're influenced by terroir and grapes. Why would they not be influenced by terroir and grains? Right. Mm-hmm. The- we don't, we don't destroy terpenes through distillation. They don't get, they don't, you don't, destroying a compound is not that easy. No. You don't destroy matter first off. Yes. And to even break apart a compound is not super easy. Just because it looks destructive doesn't mean it is. Is it destructive to a human? Whatever. It's not destructive to a flavor compound. Right. It doesn't mean it can't potentially manipulate some of those flavor compounds and induce reactions, and that does happen inside the still. But a lot of the important compounds that are derived from grain directly are not destroyed through distillation. So flavonoids are extraordinarily robust. A lot of them are. I mean, like I said, terpenes are an important class derived directly from grains. So are a lot of volatile phenols. So like gaiacol, vinyl gaiacol, ethyl gaiacol. These are spicy, sweet spice, baking spices. They can come from a number of places, but one of those places is the degradation of lignin in the grain itself. Mm-hmm. So it's directly from the grain and it's present and it's present in the mash, it's present in the beer, and it's present in the whiskey, and it's coming from the grain and it's not destroyed through distillation. And again, these same flavor compounds are important in wine as well. And they've studied this in wine and terroir impacts the concentration and presence of volatile phenols 
and wine. So again, why wouldn't it happen in whiskey as well? Grains and grapes might not look a lot alike. Right. Botanically, they are very similar. From a culinary standpoint, I get it. They're not. But from a botanical standpoint, they're both the fruits of their respective plants. Right. And their physiology is not that different. And neither is their chemistry, not in a relative standpoint. So there's a lot of the same mechanisms. And they don't understand this great in wine, especially at the biochemical level, what's happening. But they have studied it and they do know, for instance, like methoxypyrazines, another one from the grape directly that's an important flavor compound in wine. It's also an important flavor compound in whiskeys that come from the grain. And they know that things like cooler temperatures, less sunlight, that's going to decrease the concentration of methoxypyrazines in the grapes. Mm-hmm. Now, here's a question. Mm-hmm. Since you're such an expert on yeast, in my opinion, now yeast is not, you can't Maybe you can. I'm, I'm not a scientist, but you can't just, you have to have natural components to yeast. So is yeast part of terroir? So it's actually, this is an interesting part that I think even makes the role of terroir that much more of an important factor that we should consider and pursue it so that we can tap into diversity of flavor. But the yeast itself is, to me, the fermentation process. So that's not a part of terroir because you're not on the farm. Again, it's all tied to the farm, just like terroir is tied to the vineyard. Mm -hmm. But you're feeding the yeast food that's coming from your grains. Right. So the yeast can't live in water. It needs nutrients to survive. And those nutrients are coming from the grains. And it's everything from amino acids to fatty acids to carbohydrates, so the sugars that it will metabolize into ethanol and flavor compounds. You're feeding the yeast a meal that's based on the composition of your grains. And terroir impacts the composition of your grains. And so what we found, and we actually have on this in a scientific journal, esters are one of the most meaningfully impacted groups of compounds when it comes to terroir. Now, esters are definitely in grains. They're definitely in grapes. For sure. But they're not there in high enough concentrations to impact the flavor of the whiskey or the wine. So all of the esters that are in wine and whiskey and beer and so many other foods and beverages that are so important for flavor. Esters, the fruity esters are so important for flavor. Those are coming from the yeast during fermentation. Right. But based on what you're feeding them, you can really change the ester production, both in composition and in concentration. Inadvertently, indirectly, terroir is playing a role in the production of esters by yeast. So. This is, again, you've got terroir impacting flavor compounds that come directly from grains, whether it's methoxypyrazines, whether the green bell peppery flavor, whether it's volatile phenols, spicy, whether it's terpenes that are floral, or terroir impacting flavors indirectly based on the fact that the yeast is going to respond and metabolize the food provided by the grain in a different way based on how terroir impacted that grain in the first place because again that's the food for the yeast right and all the flavor compounds that yeast produces is going to be based on the nutrients that you're feeding it everything you just laid out for us suggests that you are well prepared to defend your dissertation (laughs) (laughs) yeah i hope you're right (laughs) is that's what your dissertation is going to be for your final doctorate degree well, uh, there's four chapters to my dissertation, and one chapter is around why, based on the comparison with wine, why terroir and whiskey exist. Now, another chapter is we actually studied terroir and whiskey directly. So we took three varieties of corn and planted them on four farms throughout Texas, from the Panhandle to our farm at Sawyer Farms, which is more central Texas, to the Gulf Coast, and then to the border of Mexico. And separately, we harvested and in the lab, distilled all of those different variety farm combinations into new make whiskey. And then we did follow-up chemical analysis, follow-up sensory analysis, and actually showed terroir, whether it was the variety of grain, the farm, or the interaction of those two impacted 36 different flavor compounds significantly. Wow. And you said this was the same corn variety in each place? Three varieties, that we grew in four farms. Okay. And, and also different flavors that were impacted from corn flavor to multi flavor to fruity to floral. So I think what we've shown working with Texas A&M and just through our own research is there is direct evidence in both beer and whiskey that terroir plays a role in flavor development. There is a ridiculous amount of 
analogical evidence compared to the wine industry because there is a lot of research in wine. Right. There's not a lot of research in whiskey. There's mm-hmm. UC Davis has an entire department devoted to wine research. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like wine has all this science backing it. And then we'll go below that a little bit. You have beer and then down the bottom floor is where you have whiskey. There's just, there's really nothing <laughs> in the literature. Scotland has the Scotch Whiskey Research Institute, which has done a lot of great stuff. Mm-hmm. But when you look at American whiskey, there's not a lot, but mm-hmm. mentioned for the benefit of our listeners, this extends to all spirits. Yeah. Because of course, all spirits undergo distillation. The cocktail collection we've done tastings with a single estate vodkas yeah. from a single brand. And one most certainly can tell the difference from one estate to another. Yeah. And I, look, I think if like if we talked about earlier, the fact that terroir impacts a lot of the yeast compounds of the yeast derived flavor compounds like esters, you really at that point, I struggle with where the argument is because no one would debate that the important esters produced by yeast don't carry over into the final product through distillation. Because esters are the most important flavor compound class in wine and whiskey and, and beer. They are the main contributors to flavor. And you just have, I like to describe it as, and I do this in the book, you have the flavor of whiskey, but you could apply it to anything as wine or beer. You have, it's like a tapestry and you pull on one thread and you're going to shift something. And terroir can pull it through multiple threads at once, just like yeast strain selection can, just oak barrel species can, just like maturation location can. So I don't mean to imply that terroir is the most important part of developing flavor in whiskey, but I do think it's a very important part along with everything else. Right. Mm -hmm. And to continue to tap into commodity grain is forget the issues with the farmer not making enough money and forget the environmental stuff for a second, but just... If we're all using commodity grain, you're, it's a disservice to the diversity of flavor that can exist within whiskey. And I don't mean to imply that there's not already an amazing amount of diversity in whiskey. There is. But I do think there's more for us to discover. And I think that those flavors will be specific to certain places. And that's where you'll start to see something similar to what exists in wine, where Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand doesn't taste the same as one from Napa. And there's environment, you know, there's reasons for that based on the vineyard conditions. And Mm -hmm. you can't replicate that. Where I go with this in the book and where a lot of what I'm working on now with Pernod Ricard, which is our parent company around sustainable agriculture, Mm -hmm. where this really goes for me is that I do think we're going to find a diversity of flavor through terroir. And that's great. But I think probably what's more important is it's a way to break our farmers out of the commodity grain system. And that system is not working very well for them in general. It's not uncommon for a farmer to make less money on an acre of land than they put into it. Mm-hmm. The only reason they stay in business is government subsidies. Yeah, subsidies, mm-hmm. sure. And sure, so make up the difference. There was this newfound like pride in what they were producing because they could actually taste something that came from their farm because they're not selling it to the commodity grain system where get their corn is sold as animal feed or fuel ethanol. So they're actually a part of this journey. And I think that encourages, aside from the fact that you can start to pay farmers more fairly for their product, for a quality product, you also start to encourage innovation on the farm. And again, you can't really pursue better flavor on the farm without inadvertently pursuing ecologically friendly approaches to agriculture. Mm-hmm. We have a very romantic product produced from grain, <laughs> much more romantic than commodity white flour or animal feed. And we could play a big role in promoting some of these this some of these approaches and these techniques and the message in general around sustainable, maybe even regenerative agriculture. And by dismissing terroir and just saying, hey, just use commodity grain or, or whatever, or it doesn't matter. I just think that it, it's not a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. All right. Cocktail talk. Talk to us. What do you like? We don't ask our guests what their favorite is because that's a fool's errand, we believe. Talk to us about categories. You walk into a bar and TX is not on the back bar. What do you order? I I love egg white based cocktails. So, I mean, those whiskey, sours. I love whiskey sour. Look, I'm more of a novice when it comes to cocktails, if I had to be honest. Please be honest. But whiskey sours, I'm a big fan of old fashioned. 
I really do like Manhattans and Negronis, the classics. I, yeah, sure. We get that a lot from a lot of people that do this show, yeah. and I'm wondering if it's from just the whiskey makers. Cause, yes, because we're all into whiskey, and so we all like the classic whiskey cocktails. We've had several people say, "Does neat count?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or the rocks. That's a different. That's adding something. So cocktail. Yeah. So we get a lot of good. Yeah, 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 you know, I love this whiskey Rita. I love this whiskey Rita you recommended using TX blended. Mm. I'm going to try that. I will say though. And as a distiller and one that loves to get into the science of it, it's something that's, it's nice to just go to a cocktail bar and not know a whole lot about cocktails and just enjoy it yeah. and not worry too mm-hmm. much about it mm-hmm. and nice. not analyze it. Cause it's even, it is hard for, especially if it's TX to just sit back and enjoy the whiskey without jumping straight into trying to analyze it. I don't, I don't like that aspect of it. It's just reality. Uh-huh. But it's nice cocktail. That I, oh, of course. It's very difficult. I feel like I don't know what's going on, so I just enjoy it. Where can our listeners purchase your book from? On Amazon, of course. And our gift yeah. store. You can go to the TX Whiskey gift store if you want to buy a signed copy as well. And we do ship. Oh, nice. Okay. Go for the signed copy. I'm just going to say this. The book smells good. All right. Yeah. The book smells delicious. <laughs> Yes, the book has terroir. The books, yeah. The book has terroir, yeah. It does. Yes, made heirloom pulp. Yep. I did tell Columbia, who's the publisher, I said, right, the quality of this paper is nice. I like it. Y'all did a good job. That's nice, yeah. yeah. It's a beautiful book. I am already started reading it, and I can't wait to finish it. Well, appreciate it. And we are going to get a copy for one of our lucky listeners, thanks to Rob Arnold. He's going to donate that to us. Everyone should stay tuned to see how they could get a copy of that. And then also stay tuned to see what Chef Louise will be making with one of these lovely expressions. I can't wait to find out. Rob, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And for imparting your knowledge of science and whiskey. It's been fantastic. And imparting your whiskey. Yes. Yeah, it's been great. That was a lot of fun. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Yeah, we appreciate it. We hope to have you back when you have something new to share with us. All right. It was good talking to you all. Likewise. Thank you so much. World of Wheezy is up next. Stay with us. Hey, Louise, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Today, we're going to talk about some Texas whiskey from TX, straight bourbon whiskey. We had a whole bunch of expressions from that. I think it was like five or six total. So I gave you a whole bunch of samples of that. And which one did you decide to go with? Well, hello there. Shout out to all of our Texan homies. This week, I chose the Texas straight bourbon in the Pedro Jimenez sherry cask. Oh, good choice. I just loved this particular expression. And of course, all I could really think about was flan. I lived in Spain for about a year and a half. I did eat a lot of flan. And I also did drink quite a bit of sherry because that's what you do while you're there. That's what you do. And I was thinking about, okay, so I want just a traditional flan, but why not take some of the fruit that you kind of pick up in the notes of the whiskey, the stone fruit, the cherries, plum, apricot, and do a flambe with those using some of the bourbon and serve that alongside the flan. I think it'd be a decadent dessert, you know, to finish a meal. It would pick up a lot of that caramel and candied nut notes from the bourbon. It'd be quite an excellent pairing. Yeah, that sounds really good. I think... I remember my very first flan was actually in Germany and unfortunately it was not good. So I had a very bad taste in my mouth about flan for years. But now I'm glad to say it was just a bad experience. (laughs) So this sounds amazing and I can't wait to try it. Well, I don't know that the Germans are known for their flan. Never heard. No, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. And I would say most people that say they don't like flan, it's because they have not had a good one. I'm going to say they probably all went to that same place in Germany where we had it. And they served it to us two nights in a row. It was part of our like, you know, we had this tour package and they just gave us whatever was on their menu. And we happened to be at this hotel for two nights and they served it to us twice. And they knew we didn't like it the first night because nobody ate it. And everyone's like, what is this? Because it was so foreign looking. And you'd think, oh, they didn't eat it. We'll give them something different because they had other things. But no, they didn't. Anyway, I digress. They were pushing it on the dumb Americans. Yeah, sure were. You can't blame them for trying. (laughs) Yep, yep, yep. So So, that sounds really delicious. I can't wait to try that. And I can't wait to talk to you next week about what we're going to be tasting next week. So I'm going to let you go and get to your baking and your cooking and your pairing so that we can talk next week about the next one. All right. I'll speak to you next week. 
As we conclude our two-part debate on terroir and whiskey, we invite you to visit spiritsofwhiskey.com, click on our giveaway banner at the top of the page, and enter to win Rob Arnold's latest book. The contest ends June 1st, 2021. But for those of you who can't wait that long, feel free to purchase a copy by clicking on our whiskey shop in the navigation bar of our website. For show notes on today's podcast, please visit our website at spiritsofwhiskey.com. That's whiskey with an E. We'll include links and supporting documents from today's stories in this episode's blog post. As always, you'll see upcoming topics, a guest roster, and links to past shows. Sign up to become a VIP member of Spirits of Whiskey. With your membership, you'll have access to listen to our series, The Malting Floor, be able to watch extra video content related to past episodes, and you'll enjoy access to our new web series, Tales from the Still. To learn how, visit our website and click on the pop-up button. If you run a whiskey club, or if you're a member of one, and you'd like your work featured in the Spirits of Whiskey Club Corner, send us an email via our website contact form, or leave us a voice message on our anchor page. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, Slanchava! Spirits of Whiskey is produced by First Real Entertainment and the Center for Culinary Culture, home of the Cocktail Collection, and is available via Anchor, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are heard.